Hello, I'm Helen Pidd and you're listening to The Bike Podcast from The Guardian. On this month's show, I'll be on the tail of the new government trying to find out where cycling really sits in their priority list. We'll be paying homage to the greatest bike race on earth, the Tour de France, and we'll be joining a group of parents, none of whom have ever even touched a bike before, as they learn to ride with their kids. But first, what do you get if you mix a pagan ritual, a horribly early alarm call, and a bunch of nuts? That's right, the cult that is the Midsummer Madness bike ride. Lucy Greenwell set out to mark the longest day of the year by getting up in the middle of the night. It's 2.23am on Monday morning, the 21st of June, and I've just arrived at London Bridge for the Midsummer Madness bike ride. The plan is to ride through London in the dead of night to arrive at Primrose Hill in time for sunrise at 4.43am. I don't know who's going to turn up, if anyone. I'm the first here. Um, I'm just going to wait here for a bit. To be honest, I've had about four minutes sleep and I'm, I guess my big question is, what is the point of this? What's the appeal? Why are these people here? Frankly, why am I here? The organiser is, is a cycling fanatic called Barry Mason. He runs the Southwark Cyclist Group. He's arranged the whole ride. He is over there. I'll go and ask him. So, Barry, hi. Good evening. Isn't it a wonderful night? <laughs> It's very, very early in the morning. Oh, it's magical. This is a summer solstice. This is the start of the longest day of the year, and we should be celebrating that. And when did you set this up? When was the first summer solstice bike ride? I think about 12 years ago. I just decided to do it, and the first time, three very sad men turned up, and me. (laughs) And I just thought, sod this. I don't want to be with four saddos. And we had a fairly miserable time. But the optimist in me made me do it again the next year. So what's, what's the plan today? Right, it's a great route. We meet at 2.30am London Bridge and then we go to the lovely bar Italia in Soho. It's open all night. Um, and then we try and get to Primrose Hill for four o'clock and then hang around until the sun rises at 4.43 on the dot. So we'd better get moving this way. Follow me. Thank you. And welcome. Thanks a lot. OK, so Barry's just given the, uh, the signal. We're off. There's about 100 people here. Everyone's getting on their bike and cruising over London Bridge. The number 23 night bus has just overtaken us. We're just coming up to Ludgate Circus. Someone fell off while trying to change gears. I think everyone's just a bit dazed at three in the morning, to be honest. Leicester Square Tube Station. Okay, we're zipping left into Soho, past the rickshaw drivers and over the cobbles. Okay, so we're at um, Cafe Ballon, not Bar Italia. Bar Italia is shut, which is a bit gutting um, for Barry, but luckily the 24-hour Ballon's Cafe um, has allowed us to have coffees there. You're drinking coffee and orange juice. Who, who are you? I'm Rachel. And what are you doing on the ride? We're cycling from Greenwich to Primrose Hill to watch the sunrise on Midsummer's Day. And why? 
It's the start of summer fun. Yeah, like we finished all our exams, like we might as well just like go out and I don't know, it's so it's so nice going through London when it's all quiet and like it's just bikes around, like no cars. It's really yeah. I don't want to say magical because that's really cheesy. Uh, my name is Sam. Uh, I know Hannah here from we do a masters at Birkbeck together. What made you decide to come on the midnight bike ride? I think it's quite amazing to see London at night in such company. I don't know, just something kind of funny about staying up and drinking tea <laughs> rather than staying up and getting drunk. Uh, yeah. I was expecting it to be all hippies, but it's not quite that, is it? I mean, I thought it would be like Stonehenge transposed yeah, to the streets of Soho. Did you think that too? Yeah, I was thinking Druids as well. I think that's the most amazing thing, that people meet in this one place uh, all from disparate parts of the city and then you sort of don't have to touch them, it's just nice to know these other people exist. Right? You can perform this strange, not at all <laughs> pagan ritual together. <laughs> that man's dancing. Glow stick dancing. Backflip. It's all coming out now. <laughs> yeah, give someone too many cups of tea and who knows what will happen. All hell will break loose on the streets of Soho. <laughs> So we're going north on Dean Street after the tea pit stop and the sky has gone. It's turning kind of rather gorgeous, sort of glowing blue, which is a sure sign that the dawn is on its way. I'm just finding myself bicycling along with a grin on my face and I don't really know why that is, because really it's mad to be biking at this time and I'm really tired and but there's something about the 100 people on bikes all just cruising through an empty London it's just really quite exciting for some reason right Regent's Park here we are in we go And the mood is definitely um, becoming a bit more rowdy after the coffees. There's a little more energy about the group. There's even some singing. You can see a spire just over the trees. And I just heard the clock strike four. And in to Primrose Hill. We've just got the final hurdle, which is up the hill itself. Ooh. Last bit. Wow. We've made it. We're here, all in one piece. Isn't this an amazing view? What can you see? London Eye, the wheel. Mm -hmm. GPO Tower, Canary Wharf. The whole of London is just spread out like a carpet. It's amazing. So I've heard you guys met on this bike ride last year and now you are together. We are. So we actually joined the ride together this year, um, arriving together. So tell me about last year. What happened? I drank most of the day at a barbecue and then someone said there's a bike ride happening. So I came along. What's your name? Lucy. And you are? I'm Dick. How do you do? OK, so Dick, when did you set eyes on Lucy? Yeah, I just kind of saw her wandering around near some bins somewhere. 
just near Baritalia. So what were you doing on the ride? Okay, I was very proud of myself because I went on the ride on my own and I've been meaning to come on this ride for many years. Dick came up to me and said, hello, do you remember me? And uh, we went to school together, so I haven't seen him for many years. And so did love blossom here on the top of Primrose Hill as the sun broke over London? Was that when it really kicked off? No, no, no. (laughs) Dick seemed to have gathered a whole crowd of people. I had some fizzy, fizzy, like, worm sweet things, and most people would follow me for those. Dick offered that everybody should go back to his boat and he would cook breakfast. So we went back with a couple who were on a tandem and a few other people and then we had a greasy spoon breakfast um, on Dick's boat, where I'm now living. (laughs) People, if you want to find love, go on the summer solstice bike ride. You heard it here first. That was Lucy Greenwell signing off at 4.47am watching the sunrise on London's Primrose Hill. Well, from bike flirtations to bike politics, Prime Minister David Cameron has a history of sending out rather mixed messages when it comes to bicycling. Sure, he rides to work, but the chauffeur follows behind with his shoes stowed in the glove compartment. He says he's all for cycling, but what now when it's cuts, cuts, cuts? I went down to the annual all-party parliamentary bike ride at Westminster to find out what the future looks like. So I'm here and I've just bumped into Lord Barclay, who's Secretary of the All-Party Parliamentary Cycling Group. Hello, sir. So we've got a cycling Prime Minister now. Does that mean that we're going to have more money pumped into cycling infrastructure, other cycling facilities? Well, I'd love to see more money pumped into infrastructure and cycling facilities, and it's great to have a cycling Prime Minister. However, yesterday I believe that all the cycling organisations were told to cut all their budgets completely, and nobody's to market any more cycling, and there's a complete freeze on everything. So I, 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 I wish the government would get their act together on this. So I've just spotted Norman Baker MP. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. As the Minister responsible for cycling, how are you going to carry out this cycling revolution with no cash? Or are you going to be one of the lucky few who actually get some money to play with? (laughs) Well, we have got a big deficit problem, there's no doubt about that. But actually, uh, what uh, the evidence shows is that money spent on cycling is a very good investment. And the return, in pure economic terms, is actually good for that. So why then has Cycling England, why were they told yesterday that their funding is probably going to be cut from 2011? Well, we don't know that, definitely. I mean, what I, I think what's happening at the moment is all budgets are subject to review across all departments in all areas. And that's just uh, obviously causing... Uh, concern and, and discontent among those who are uncertain what the future holds, but uh, that's no decision has been taken on that. But Labour MP Ben Bradshaw had this to say. It's really, really depressing. It's such a short-term measure. The benefits, not just to the economy, but to people's health, easing congestion, uh, are so enormous for so little money in cycling. For the price of one bypass, you could fund all of the cycling you needed for the whole of the rest of the decade. And uh, it's, it's a very, very depressing day for all of those who care deeply about cycling. I hunted down Tory MP Sir George Young, better known as the bicycling baronet, who said that on the contrary, the government is still very bike-friendly. I think you'll find that the Department of Transport and all the ministers are pro-cycling as an eco-friendly way of getting around. And uh, I think if you give the coalition government time, you'll find that they do develop a portfolio of policies which are broadly welcomed by the cycling community. Hmm, mixed messages there. We'll be keeping a very close eye on whether the new government will match its enthusiasm for cycling with cold, hard cash. 
watch out for a post on the Guardian's bike blog on this topic very soon. But that's enough about politics for one podcast. Next up, I'll be getting out of the saddle and into the studio for a discussion with three very special guests to get the inside track on who is going to be on the podium at the end of this year's Tour de France. Hi, this is Victoria Pendleton and this is the Guardian Bike Podcast. And What I like most about cycling is being able to get out in the countryside and enjoy the scenery out of the city and just relaxing and clearing my mind. So regular listeners to the Bike Podcast will know that we generally prefer to concentrate on cycling for pleasure rather than sport, but we couldn't ignore the biggest, the best bike race of all time, which takes place this month. It's my favourite sporting event of the year. Wee oui, wee, oui. say le mighty Tour de France. Here with me in the studio to discuss this three-week exercise in masochism are three special guests, each with their own unique perspective on Le Grand Boucle. I am delighted to welcome the author Tim Moore, the man responsible for French revolutions, the funniest book, in my opinion, ever written about Le Tour. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Here too is Brian Smith, a former professional cyclist turned cycling commentator, and The Guardian's own Matt Seaton, bike nut, author and leg-shaving enthusiast. (laughs) Greetings, gentlemen. Now, as far as I know, there's only one man in this room who's actually ridden the tour, and it's not you, Brian. Uh, apologies about that. But so, That's Tim, you, want, you once did the whole route, preparing for the 2,000-mile odyssey, just doing one spinning class. What were your abiding memories of it, and what on earth were you doing? Well, I should point out here, just before anyone gets too, uh, too kind of impressed with this achievement, was that I wasn't actually in the real race, uh, as my own children were very disappointed to discover when they came out to see me after about three weeks. Where's everyone else, Daddy? Um, it was just me on my own trying to tackle this. It was really a kind of a just uh, to see at the age of 35 if I could um, take on what was the most fearsome challenge in sport, but at my own pace, which is a very important distinction. I wasn't racing anyone. And so when I'm kind of going up these even quite small hills, for me, just getting to the to the summit was a real achievement. The idea of actually racing somebody is just beyond my, my kind of belief, really. And what were the high and low points for you on your tour? Well, I did actually get quite good at it by the end, and I, I, th- I did manage to do the, the longest stage of that year's race, which I think was, well, I think, I think, I know it's engraved in my soul, it was 254 kilometres in, okay, probably about 40% more time than they would have taken, but that, that to me ranks as a, as a kind of life-defining achievement, and, you know, doing two or three of these iconic climbs in a single day, again, looking back now, I can't quite believe that I was capable of doing that. Uh, low points, too too many to mention, actually. Kind of getting off to push on the first hill, you know, being sick by the road endlessly, <laughs> that sort of thing. Things you don't really see professional cyclists doing. Brian, you might not have ridden the Tour, but you got all the way around the Giro d'Italia, didn't you? Which is a bit harder in some ways. What is it like doing a Grand Tour? Well, some people say the, the Giro d'Italia is harder, but I think it's harder in different ways. I think it's harder because of the, the parkour, uh, the stages, the length of the stages, the mountains... I think the the Tour de France is is different for a lot of reasons. It's like, um, well, you can relate it to like a, a World Cup match pretty much every day for for three weeks with uh, two rest days. Everything right from the first week you, you tend to enjoy. The second week it becomes a bit more like a, a job, and then the third week is just pretty much torture. And to what, what extent would you say it's um, a, a mental challenge rather than a physical one? Um, I would say 50% mental, if I was to be honest. Everybody's prepared for the Tour de France. Everybody should be at the peak of their condition. So physically, they're okay. 
But mentally, you have to be prepared every day. The crowds, the press, everything round about it is just so draining. And of course, in the middle of summer in uh, in France, it's uh, it can get very hot. It's going to be difficult for a, for a lot of these riders, especially if you're one of the favourites. Even just riding round the route is oh an God, achievement I in itself. Die happy now, look at, look at me go. <laughs> <laughs> and Matt, let's bring you into the discussion. What are you looking forward to for this year's tour? I suppose the kind of big talking point this year is the fact that there is something that you could more or less call a British team in it, and we haven't had that for for years. Of course, Bradley Wiggins did a fantastic ride last year, and so this year, of course, he's part of Team Sky, which is built on you know the kind of success of the British Olympic squad, and obviously Bradley is the figurehead there. So that makes it interesting. It's still fascinating because Lance Armstrong's still in the race, whatever you think of Lance. And then, of course, there's always you know, the Mark Cavendish factor and the, the thrills and spills of the, the sprints and you know, a couple of other fascinating things this year. There are two stages which go over the Col de Tourmalet. It's 100 years since the Tour first went to the Pyrenees, so that's a big historic moment. And then one of these cobbled stages very early on. And uh, you know, that always, uh, you know, that'll always kind of throw a curveball into the into the mix. So let's talk a bit more about Mark Cavendish. Um, I think that you, you've met him, haven't you, Tim? What, what are your opinions of him? And, and can he equal or even go better than he did last year when he won, I think, six sprints? Is that right? Yeah, he won six stages last year. Um, I met him early this year. And OK, it was the start of the season and he clearly wasn't in a, in a great mood. <laughs> I gather he can be, he can be, you know, he can be a bit, a bit difficult by his own admission. I don't think he's quite got in, into his stride yet this year, and clearly maybe with the Tour de France coming along, maybe maybe he's left it a bit too late. And mm-hmm. there was this, this great crash that was uh, in the Tour of Switzerland last week, which, um, you know, I have to say from the other point, the other riders, he was was concerned he was completely his fault, and they all kind of made a big protest at the start of the next stage. I'm sure he doesn't see it that way. <laughs> what are your opinions on, on Mark Cavendish, the Manx man with a temper and the well, his legs? Well, I have to look from the kind of media side. He's a personal friend. I've kind of... Known Cav quite a while. I was with him on Saturday night. He understands that his recent crash in the, the Tour de Suisse. I do not believe it was uh, completely his fault, but he regrets a lot of it. There was uh, some reports that he actually um, spat on the rider, which he put his hands up and said, "Yeah, he actually did." Um, so I don't <laughs> no. think anybody. I don't think anybody has heard it from his own mouth. But uh, he put his hands up on Saturday night and said to me, "Look, I did." It was just frustration. It was something that's been building up. It's just something you overstep the mark. You don't do that. But the pressure's really on him this year because he hasn't been delivering. Um, but there's potentially uh, nine stages that he could win in the Tour de France. Hmm. What about Bradley Wiggins? Is he realistically going to be on that podium this year? Well, I'd say no. <laughs> um, oh, no, really? Yes, I think uh, I'd love him to be on the podium. If he uh, gets in the top six, I think it'll be better than his fourth last year because he's going in with a new team. You cannot take the success from the British Olympic team into the Tour de France. It's two completely different things and it's going to be difficult. Bradley's terrific, but in this case, it's not just Bradley that I'm worried about. It's the team round about him. I don't think the team is gelled and I don't think the team is as strong as it maybe could have been. Tim, what do you think? 
Last year was f- uh, absolutely phenomenal performance. He doesn't quite have the absolute kind of consistency in the mountains that, that you need to, to win the tour, or at least to get in the top three. I agree with, with the guys about uh, about Bradley. I mean, the guy is basically, you know, he's an Olympic pursuiter who did incredible things to himself last year, which is, you know, lost about five kilos and gave himself the kind of power-to-weight ratio where he could compete in the high mountains. But even so, he just barely had it. You know, he's not up there with Andy Schleck or ultimately Lance Armstrong or, you know, those was, guys who are It was are great, though, to see the effort he was putting in. It really oh. was back to the old days of people absolutely flogging themselves to death, seeing Bradley on the... On the the Vaughan too, I think it was, when he kind of, you know, more or less disappeared and then somehow clawed himself back to kind of uh, keep it going with the, just the pain etched into his face was was wonderful, <laughs> wonderful yeah, to see. You always get 100% from Bradley. This year is harder. Uh, there's more mountains than, than last year. I think it's going to be more difficult. One of the things I love about the Tour de France is the sort of ridiculous lengths that people go to in order to win, if you think about it, along the years. And my sort of famous ludicrous rumour that's doing the rounds at the moment is all about motorised doping. Have you heard anything about this, Tim? Talk us through what I have. on earth I, it is. Well, one of the things that first attracted me um, as a slightly unfit person, who was a bit too old anyway, to the event, was the fact that um, the whole history of it was, was uh, you know, kind of um, wacky races style cheating. I thought, well, I'll have a bit of that. To, to which end I did actually snip off a huge loop right at the beginning because in the early days they used to literally get on trains and things like that and be to- <laughs> towed up mountains by a car with a trailing a bit of wire with a cork where they put in their teeth and be yanked up hill. So I did, when, when these rumours, which, I mean, did seem absolutely absurd and nonsensical, appeared about riders. I mean, you know, Fabian Cancellari recently won a couple of big races. Um, he was the name that was being bandied about. Uh, I couldn't stop um, doing endless amounts of internet-based research into this. <laughs> and sort of watching it to see if you can indeed see him yeah, pressing a secret well, button. <laughs> yeah, people, exactly. The, the, the detail that people go to, and it's just like, I guess all the, all the Eurosport coverage and found out the little the place where you switch bikes twice in a slightly suspicious way. Uh, you know, OK, the, the UCI, where the cycling's governing body, they have said they are going to have these, you know, X-ray scanners to see if someone has got a secret little motor. There's a part of me that would quite like it to be true because it's right back to the proper traditions of really ridiculous cheating. Fantastic. Well, thanks all very much for coming in today. Hope you'll join us again and we'll find out then if the British rider has made it onto the podium. So thank you very much. It's one thing going to crazy measures to shave milliseconds off your time in the Tour de France, but what if just staying upright is your main challenge? It's quite easy to forget the effort involved in learning how to ride a bike. Remember the stabilisers, your dad running along behind you. It's tough when you're six, it's really tough when you're 36. At Wellington Primary School in Tower Hamlets in East London, a bunch of mums are taking on the challenge with no stabilisers at all. We went along to join the class. Right, guys, can I have all your attention, please? We'll go back to where we were at the end of last week and we'll redo that jungle. Hi, my name's Hafsa. I'm 29 years old. I have two kids who attend the school. One's a four-year-old and one's a nine-year-old. And this is a bike-it course that I'm actually attending and it's wonderful. So, snaking order. Me, then Rukshana, then Aisha, Tasneem. I've never ridden a bike before and I can't even believe it that we're actually on the roads now. Whereas before I didn't even know how to hold onto a bike, let alone get on one and ride one. Again? <laughs> Is that right, everyone? 
Today we're going to go into the roads, do a bit more road um, signs and um, learn how to actually go on to, from small roads to major roads, um, doing signalling, riding straight. So let's see how it goes today. Sneaky cyclist, yeah! <laughs> Hi, I'm James Scott, the bike officer for Tower Hamlets, and I work for Sustrans on a project called Bike It. We're at Wellington Primary School today, and this is obviously one of the Bike It schools for this year. Tower Hamlets is an interesting bar. It's got one of the worst child obesity problems in the country, and walking and cycling is one of the easiest things to do to combat obesity. All the parents said, we're, we're more than willing to let our children out on the road, but we ourselves can't ride and we don't know if it's safe or not because we can't ride. So I went to the council and we uh, banged our two heads together and came up with this project called Bike It You Can Too. It basically delivers the Bike It project but to parents. The amazing thing was on the first day of that three hours, I actually was able to ride. Oh, I was like on the top of the world. It felt like oh, there's the breeze in my face and there's nobody in front of me. And it's like I could go whichever direction I wanted to. <laughs> So it was brilliant. I did fall over, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but I didn't give up. We're just going to go down the side of the lorry, we'll be alright. Yeah, we should be alright. Okay, everyone on your bikes, paddle set. My name's Kate, I'm a cycle instructor. We've had eight weeks of training. The aim is to show, get these parents cycling, give them the, the basic skills cycle training, but also get them to see cycling as something they can do, something that is relevant and useful for them. Everyone covering their brakes! I'm still learning, I'm not I'm still not able to ride straight. <laughs> That's like a big challenge for me at the moment. Um, when I signal to the right or the left, I might I tend to tilt a bit, so I'm still learning. I'm, con I'm gonna continue. Tower Hamlets has got a real ethnic mix as well. It's a really exciting place to be because I think it's got the highest population of Bengali and Bangladeshi people than any other London borough. And that's shown today with the school we're at. I think around 80% of the children that go to this school are from Bengali or Bangladeshi communities. And all the mums that are on this project, bar two, are Bengali or Bangladeshi. This group here, I think around 97% or something, have never even looked at a bike before, let alone ridden one. Bike culture, our women don't really go out like that and do bikes. People talk about people from behind and they make um, these uh, comments and remarks. It's like a tradition thing, a cultural thing. It's like a woman riding a bike on the streets. That is not something what we'd normally do. That's one of the things that actually did put me off all these years. And now that i got a chance, I thought, no, I don't care whoever says whatever, but I'm going to do it. Lift your bottom as you're going over the bump. Whoa! I tried to, and that's when I went wrong. <laughs> Straight line, yeah, Hafsa? Yeah? <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> Hi, my name is Halima Chaudhry. And first, I was so scared, I thought I never can ride. I even can't do the pedaling <laughs> in the first week. And I was so upset. And then I said, no, I'm going to try next week. So I tried next week a little bit. Then I thought, oh my God, it's so hard. So on third week, I've done it. <laughs> so I'm just a bit struggled with signaling and then, then I hope I'll learn today. I lost balance a few times and I hurt my leg as well a few times but I never give up or start carrying on. Today was last day and we've done, we learned so much things at weeks, you know, changing gears, signalings and slowing down those sort of things, you know. I'm very happy you now. Alright, let's stop one behind the other. At the moment, we're all going to be doing um, U-turns. 
I'm just going to do my turn now, um, a U-turn on the road. So let's see how it goes on my bike. Whoops, <laughs> there I go, there I go. <laughs> nice straight line, Hafta. And I'm looking around, planning for my U-turn. I've got completed my U-turn, back on the road. Whew, that was quite good. Looking good, guys, looking very good. My husband's really encouraged me, my sons, both my sons, they can ride a bike. I think it's going to be a really good family event thing because I thought to myself, if my sons could do it, if I learn, then we could go out and do a family thing. So that's one of the main things I actually wanted to do. My kids are really proud of me, all my friends are, so I'm really proud. The instructing, the training side of it has been pretty straightforward. It's been the, <laughs> all, all of the rest of it. <laughs> Managing this massive group of highly excitable incredibly enthusiastic, very diverse women has been a real challenge, but it's, oh, it's been so rewarding. And seeing them do it, and their confidence is growing and growing and growing. Oh, I'm like a proud mum at the end of every week. Oh, they make me so proud. Well, I'm gonna pedal off now. Fingers crossed that July is as gloriously sunny as June. I don't know about you, but I am determined not to spend the whole month in front of the telly watching the tour because there is so much else going on in the world of cycling, not least the launch of Boris Johnson's bike rental scheme in London. Will all 6,000 bikes end up at the bottom of the Thames? We'll report back on that in next month's podcast. Oh, and if any of you are daft enough to be taking part in the Dunwich Dynamo, cycling 120 miles from East London to the Suffolk coast, I'll see you there. Until next time, goodbye. Bye.